Folks, listen. I've told you before, if you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and all you see is the love of God, you've missed the point of the cross. The cross of Christ does not show us the love of God. The cross of Christ shows us the holiness of God and his utter hatred for sin where he will either pour out his vengeance, his wrath, his anger on the Lord Jesus Christ or the sinner. God the Father is so holy that he will pour out his eternal wrath even on his own son. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. I want to read uh, again our, our verse, probably the um, one of the main verses that you think of when you think about the holiness of God, and that is Isaiah's vision. We talked to you about it last week of how when King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord filling the temple. And we said to you that Uzziah was king of Judah for 52 years. And during that time, Judah was very prosperous militarily, economically, materially. Uh, they were Socially, they were very prosperous, but they were horrible spiritually. And, um, and King Uzziah was struck by God with leprosy till he died because of his pride. And it was in that year after his rule for 52 years that Isaiah says he went into the temple and saw the the Lord in the temple high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and on both sides of the throne were the seraphims. With that, each had six wings. With two he flew, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet. And so, uh, and then he says in verse 3 of Isaiah 6 that we saw last week, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. These, of course, the seraphims talking to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Yahweh, which is God's name. Uh, we discussed today in chapel in the academy that when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh, or it's known, it became known later on as Jehovah, but it is properly, biblically, as Yahweh. Uh, when we speak about our God, we speak, we call him God. Well, that is not his name. There could be a plethora of deities that go by the name God. None of all of them are false. There's only one true and living God. But there are multiple, multiplicity of gods that go by the name God. Our God, the one and only true living God, his name is Yahweh. That is his name. And when you see Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament, that is Yahweh. That is the self-existent one. Holy, holy, holy is the self-existent God, the self-existent one. The whole earth is full of his glory. We began to talk to you last week about the fact that the holiness of God is his utter separateness. It is, in fact, his otherness, meaning that he is unlike any other being that ever was. He is absolutely infinite. He's absolutely perfect. Uh, God has no flaws. God makes no misjudgments. And everything God does is absolutely perfect. And we began looking at the holiness of God last week by looking, first of all, at what we call the standard of holiness. 
the standard of holiness. And we said to you last week that God is not holy because he, you can flip that, God is not holy because he uh, measures up to a list of criteria or, or a list of requirements for holiness. God is holy, folks, because he is that standard. God never does anything wrong. God never errs. God never makes misjudgments. God never causes anything to happen that isn't right. God is absolutely flawless. He is without error. He is without sin. He is fully righteous. He is absolutely, infinitely holy. And to be in the presence of God, we said, required what? You and I to be absolutely holy. And we gave you a couple of examples last time of when the angels had sinned in Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2. When the angels rebelled in heaven against God, what happened to them? They were immediately cast out of the presence of God. And sinners, when they reject Jesus Christ, they are eternally removed from the presence of God. And we said to you last week that one of the worst parts of hell is not going to be the the torture of the flames in the lake of fire, one of the, although it will be, one of, the, one of the worst parts of hell is not going to be the worm that does not die, but one of the per- worst parts of hell is going to be the fact that you are going to be forever out of the presence of God. Because no one can be unholy and be in the presence of God. In fact, Peter, echoing the words of God in Leviticus, says in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And then Jesus reiterated that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 where he said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now a lot of people will come along and they will read Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 where it says, be ye perfect. They'll say, well that just talks about being a mature Christian. That God expects us and demands that we be mature Christians. But wait a minute, you need to read the second part of that verse because Jesus goes on to say, even as or in the same way as your Father in heaven is also perfect. Folks, listen, God is much more perfect than just a mature Christian. Maturity is not the level that that Jesus is talking about here. But what Jesus is giving here in in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is given here, particularly in this chapter, chapter 5, is the requirement for heaven. And the requirement for heaven is what, church? Perfection. Just like God is perfect. That is the requirement of heaven. And without that perfection... No one will see heaven. And of course, you and I know that therein lies the problem. That you you and I, even on our best day, God requires us to do something to enter into his presence that we simply cannot do. People go to hell because they are not holy. Because they are not holy. And because they are not holy... They cannot approach holy perfection. And we said to you last week that mankind is utterly corrupt in every aspect of his being. His mind, his will, his emotions, his heart. And that is what we mean when we say total depravity. We are not saying by the doctrine of total depravity that man is as evil as he can be. Man can always come up with fresh evil. 
But what we're saying is, is that every part of man's being has been touched and affected by the sin nature. Therefore, man in Adam, which all men are, Adam is the federal headship of all humanity. And so therefore, all humanity is in Adam. So therefore, all humanity has fallen. They're sinful. They're dead. And there's no part of them that has not been affected by sin. And so therefore, to stand in the presence of a holy God, something else has to be done. Because we can't do it. And then comes along Jesus Christ. And so that's the standard of holiness. And then we, we went on from that and we looked at the support of holiness. And we gave you four, I think, four or five areas in which God's perfection or God's holiness is seen. We saw that God's holiness is seen in his creation. And these all began with the letter C. God's holiness is seen in his creation. Uh, God's holiness is seen in code. That's speaking about his legal standards of morality. God's standard is seen in the canon. We talk about that as the uh, sacrificial standards of God. And we saw that God's holiness is seen in condemnation. Folks, this is something that you and I need to always remember and realize. That God, let me put it to you this way. If salvation is the greatest display of God's grace, then what is the greatest display of God's holiness? If salvation of the undeserving sinner is the greatest display of God's grace, then what is the greatest display of God's holiness? The condemnation or the judgment of deserving sinners. And what you and I need to remember is that God is glorified. And this kind of rubs the wrong way in some of our minds sometimes because of the attributes we try to place on God. But what we need to keep in mind is that God is glorified just as much, equally as much, in the condemnation of deserving sinners as he is in the salvation of undeserving sinners. Okay? Because when God's holiness is appeased, he is glorified. Whether it be appeased in Christ, in his sacrifice, or whether it is appeased in the, in the eternal punishment of the sinner who has rejected Christ, his holiness is appeased, therefore he is glorified. And God is glorified. And this is another way you can put it, and this would be absolutely accurate. And this, again, rubs some of, sometimes rubs us the wrong way, but it's biblically true that God is glorified just as much when someone goes to hell as he is when someone goes to heaven. Because God does nothing, nothing that does not bring him glory. Okay? And so God is glorified. God's holiness is displayed in condemnation. And then probably the greatest display of God's holiness was in the cross. In the cross. Folks, listen, I've told you before, if you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and all you see is the love of God, you've missed the point of the cross. The cross of Christ does not show us the love of God. The cross of Christ shows us the holiness of God and his utter hatred for sin where he will either pour out his vengeance, his wrath, his anger on the Lord Jesus Christ or the sinner. God the Father is so holy that he will pour out his eternal wrath even on his own son. And so what we see in the cross of Christ is not the love of God, 
But what we see in the cross of Christ, what we should see in the cross of Christ, is God's utter hatred for sin and that would, would cause him to pour out his wrath upon Jesus Christ. And the second thing we looked at, that was the, that was the support of holiness. The third thing we looked at was the suit of holiness. And we saw in, in uh, Psalm chapter 96, verse 9, for example, where the psalmist says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. And we said to you last week there in Psalm 96, 9, that the word beauty of holiness really refers to holy attire. Holy attire. This speaks about, church, the garments that you and I are supposed to have on. We are supposed to be clothed. And because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we are clothed in righteousness. We are clothed, those people that are born again, we are clothed in the holiness of Christ because that's the only way we can stand before the Father is to have on that holy attire. And so we looked at the suit of holiness, and I apologize for going so fast through that, but I was told uh, this past week by my, one of my daughter-in-laws that by the time you finish your recap, I'm wore out. So um, I'm not going to tell you which one it was, but she's, she's, she's sitting on the second pew and she's pregnant. And, um, but I just, I, I just gave that over. I just gave that over to carnality, and I just went on. You know, you're just, you're just carnal. I'm, I'm going to, you know, whatever. All right. Let's look, at the, let's look at the fourth point, the startle of holiness. The startle of holiness. The great Puritan preacher Stephen uh, Charnock said, power is God's arm or hand. Omniscience, his eye. Mercy, his bowels. Eternity, his duration. But holiness is his beauty. And as we've stated to you before, the holiness of God is that attribute by which God is named most. Again, Stephen Charnock stated, God is oftener styled holy than almighty and set forth by this part of his dignity more than any other. This is more fixed on as an epitaph to his name than any other. You never find it expressed his mighty name or his wise name, but his great name or most of all his holy name. This is, Charnock goes on to say, is the greatest title of honor. In this latter doth the majesty and venerableness of his name appear. Now just to kind of put this in a little perspective for you, I kind of went through the scriptures this week, as you guys realize I do a lot. I kind of went through the scriptures this week, and I wanted to kind of put that, that quote from Stephen Charnock in perspective for you. The name, in the Bible, in the, the entire scriptures, all 66 books, and particularly the Old Testament, but all, I looked at all 66 books, the name God appears 280 times next to or in the same general area as the word almighty. So it's about 280 times in the scriptures where God is called almighty. But in the scriptures, the name, of, the name God appears 813 times within the general area of the title of holy or holiness. 
And so over double of the times that the name of God appears along with his attribute, the attribute that appears next to the name of God more than any other, more than wisdom, more than love, more than omnipotent, more than any other name, is the name holy. Is the name holy. Which may be why one of the reasons why the seraphim said, holy, 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 as they raised the holiness of God to the third degree of repetition. Holy is, is that attribute of God, church, that if it was ever sullied, if it was ever dirtied, if it was ever compromised, all of God's other attributes would lose their honor. God, listen, church, God cannot be merciful if he's not also holy, right? Because merciful loses his luster if there's no holiness, Because if there's no holy standard, you don't need mercy. You see that? If there's no holy standard, you don't need grace. Because there's no holiness to to be compromised. There's no holiness of which to be judged. And so therefore, if there's no holiness, God doesn't need to demonstrate grace to us. Because there's no standard. Much in the same way as if the sun were to lose its light, it would lose its ability to heat. Author Pink said in his work on the attributes of God, as sincerity is the luster of every grace in a Christian, so is purity the splendor of every attribute in the Godhead. His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom, a holy wisdom. His arm of power is a holy arm. His truth or promise is a holy promise. And when we come into the presence of holiness or the holiness of God, our instant and only reaction should be what, church? To see ourselves as absolutely unholy. Listen, folks, God hates sin, doesn't he? God hates sin. In fact, Habakkuk says, you are of pure, too pure of eyes to even look upon evil, much less partake in it. God hates sin. In fact, the scripture says in Psalm chapter 7 and verse 1, God judgeth the righteous. And God is what, church? Angry. Angry with the wicked. How often? Every day. Every day. And the fact that God, fact, folks, the fact that God punishes sin should give us a pretty good indication of God's utter hatred he had, that he has for it. You know, we often hear the old adage, and you've, and you've heard it, maybe you've said it over the years, but you've, we've all heard it, no doubt. Well, God loves the, but he hates the, is that biblical? Not at all. Listen, folks, it is not sin, but it is the sinner that God casts into hell. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, John says this, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And when John lists all of these traits, uh, unbelieving, the fearful, the abominable, the, the murderers, the whoremongers, the liars. Listen, church, these are not verbs. These are adjectives. These are describing persons. 
These are not describing actions or sins that are being plunged into the lake of fire. They are describing people that are being plunged into the lake of fire. God is not plunging into the lake of fire the sin of lying. He is plunging into the lake of fire liars. He is not sending to the lake of fire the sin of being fearful. He is sending to the lake of fire people that are fearful. He's not sending to the lake of fire the sin of whoremongering, the sin of prostitution, the sin of homosexuality. He is sending to the fire and brimstone the homosexual, the whoremonger, because he is not punishing sins. He is punishing the sinner because he is holy. Arthur Pink said something else that we need to, we need to keep in mind. God has often forgiven sinners. And I want you to catch this attention and write it down. But God never forgives sin. Okay? God does not ever forgive sin. He forgives the sinner. For us to ever think that God forgives sins is to believe that somehow God would find some sin less reprehensible. God does not justify the sin. He justifies the sinner. God does not bring reconciliation to the sin. God brings reconciliation to the sinner. In Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2, God is jealous, the prophet says, and the Lord, again, Yahweh, revengeth. And then he repeats it. Yahweh revengeth. He is furious. These are attributes that we don't like to read about God, do we? Even as Christians, Jana, let's be real, right? We don't want to think about God being furious. But he is, isn't he? He's furious. Praise God, his wrath, his fury was taken out on Christ on our behalf. But listen, church, when you have an unsaved person, think about that unsaved person that you know of in your life and you know that God is angry with them every day. God is not only angry with them, but God will take vengeance out on him, the prophet Nahum says, and God is furious. And the Lord, he goes on to say, the Yahweh, the self-existent God, will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath. You know what that means? God is storing up wrath for his enemies. And how many sins does that take? It was for one sin that God banished our first parents out of Eden, right? One sin. It was for one sin that God did not allow Moses to enter Canaan. Just one sin. It was one sin that Elisha's servant was smitten with leprosy. Just one sin. It was one sin that Ananias and Sapphira were cut off from the land of the living. Just one sin. That's all it takes for you and I to be outside of the holiness of God. And until a person understands the holiness of God, that person can never know and will never know the depths of his or her own sin. We should be shaken. We should be literally shaken to the core when we see ourselves against the backdrop of the holiness of God. Isaiah was. Isaiah was one of God's prophets. Isaiah wasn't an unsaved person coming before the throne of holy God. Isaiah was coming before the throne of holy God, one of God's prophets, one of that holy God's prophets. And what happened when he came into the presence of the holiness of God? 
prostate, he fell before God and said, I am a wicked, wicked man, and I dwell among people who are wicked. And when you and I really come into the holiness of God, when we come into that backdrop, it should shake us to the core. If we are not deeply pained by our sin, we don't understand the holiness of God at all. And without such vision of the true holiness of God, I don't believe that as Christians we can ever fully engage, truly engage in true worship. Because folks, listen, and I, I could bring up all kind, I could waste all kinds of time and bring up all kinds of videos, but you've seen them. I've shown you guys over the years, I've shown you guys more humorous and, and, and more silliness than you could ever want to see again. But real worship isn't giddy. Real worship doesn't make act, people act stupid. Worship is a life lived in the presence of an infinitely righteous and omnipresent God. By being utterly aware of his holiness and a sense of our unholiness and a sense of, un of sinfulness and a fear is proportional to our experience of the presence of God. In other words, how much you fear and abhor your sin is proportional of how much time you've really spent with God. That's why when you and I get in those patterns of not spending the appropriate time with God, sin becomes less heinous to you. Your own sin becomes less vile. But the more time you spend in the presence of God, by spending time in the Word of God, the sin in your own life becomes more vile. And so if sin in your life, if you sense in your life, and praise God, His Holy Spirit, it loves us enough where He does this for us. If you ever sense in your life a time where your own sin has become less vile to you, it's a good chance it's because you haven't spent the time in the presence of holiness the way that you should. If you ever worship God, if you've never worshiped God with a contrite spirit, then you've never truly worshiped God. Listen, church. Worshiping God has nothing to do with heaven coming down. And honestly, the more I've studied the holiness of God and the more I've studied worship, the more offensive that statement comes. Because true worship has nothing to do with heaven coming down. The only thing true worship is is me going down before the feet of Yahweh and confessing my sins before him, that's church when we can say that we truly worship God. Because a contrite spirit is the only appropriate response when we enter the presence of God, isn't it? The problem with the church is that, we, is that God has, for many people, God has become almost human. God's become almost human. He's so affable and ordinary that a lot of times we don't understand his holy indignation against sin. Sometimes people think that the character of God is one-sided, that, that somehow his merciful disposition will override everything else. And therefore we have no fear and we have no alarm of judgment. But to God, that person says in Psalm 50, verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Yahweh, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun 
to its setting. Author Pink goes on to say, the God which the vast majority of Christians, professing Christians, quote-unquote love, is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly, but lentenly weeks at the quote-unquote indiscretion of use. Folks, let me tell you something. What the unsafe society needs to realize, what Gavin Newsom needs to realize, what Joe Biden needs to realize, what Kamala Harris needs to realize, what Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and every other say unsaved person in society, what your neighbor, what your family member, what your friend needs to realize who was unsaved, who has rejected Jesus Christ, is that there is never a time when holy Yahweh, when the self-existent God, will wink at their sin. He will punish their sin to the max because the longer they live, the more he is reserving wrath for their sin. Because he is holy, church. He is holy. Everybody in this auditorium, everybody in this worship center tonight who's got family that's not saved. Every one of us. If you go down far enough in your family tree, you've got somebody in your family that's not saved. God's not going to wink at their sin. God's not going to call it an indiscretion. God is going to call it a violation of his law and an offense to his holiness. And he is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. That's scary stuff. And if it doesn't drive Christians, if the understanding of the holiness and the wrath and the vengeance of God doesn't drive Christians to evangelism, Something is very, very wrong with our hearts. Something is very, very wrong with our hearts. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 5 again, verse 5, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all what? doesn't say that God hates the works. doesn't say God hates what they do. The Bible says God hates them. God hates them. You said, I didn't think God hated. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Here, I hate those who work iniquity. I hate them, God says. The problem is that society has lost their fear. Society has lost their fear. But remember, acceptance with God is not only the basis of doing creaturely, do, doing creaturely things. We can no sooner create a world than to be able to perform a good enough act to meet God's approval. The best a sinful man can bring is defilement. In fact, Jonathan Edwards so rightly said, if you've ever, if you've ever watched Who's ever watched this little side note here? It doesn't really mean anything to you. It's free right now. I'm not going to charge you for this. But everybody here watched the first National Treasure, the very first one? Nick, come on, guys. Nicholas Cage, and they're going after the Declaration of Independence. You never watched it, Jana? Oh, man. We're going to have to have you over for dinner. You have to watch that. Um, he's looking for a treasure, a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Of course, it's invisible. And uh, it's it's it's... Very, it's good, very good family movie. But anyway, 
in, toward the end of that movie, they, they find the treasure in a place called Trinity Church. In uh, what city? Baltimore? No. New York, Philadelphia? No. Or is it New York? I think it's New York. Wall Street's in New York, isn't it? It's in New York. Okay. Jonathan Edwards, I think about this every time I see that scene in that movie. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor of that church back in the 18th century. But anyway, that, like I said, doesn't change your life at all. But Jonathan Edwards said this, the only contribute, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And too many people, too many people approach God with a really a, a casual familiarity that really borders on blasphemy. Really borders on blasphemy. And much for what passes for worship today clearly does not genuinely regard God as holy and therefore church falls woefully short of true worship. And so much worship today is self-indulgent exercises that's masquerading as worship without any serious acknowledgement of the holiness of God. It's more psychological than it is theological. It's more fleshly than it is spiritual. And I'm very certain that if most people who today claim to have seen God really saw him, they wouldn't be out lining up to get on the latest Christian talk show. They wouldn't be out selling the, having the, writing the New York Times number one bestseller. The day I saw God, the day would be lying prostrate on the ground, grieving over their sins. Again, author Pink stated, because God is holy, the utmost reverence becomes our approaches unto him. In Psalm 89, verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Psalm 99, verse 5, exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his what? Where's that? It's at his feet. Where do we worship God? When we've come in, when we've really tried, when we've really come into his presence, we find ourselves worshiping at his footstool because that's the lowest position of humility. That's prostrate. That's down as far as you can go at the feet of Jehovah, the feet of Yahweh. And the more our hearts are in awe of his presence, that is when, folks, our, our a presence in his being will be acceptable. The number five, the sensitivity of holiness. The sensitivity of holiness. I'm one of those odd uh, guys, Raynell, that kind of likes art a little bit. I took art in class. Um, and the only reason I took art in class was not because I was an artist. I mean, I'm no Picasso or, uh, you know, or any other, only that. But the only reason I took art class is because that's what, uh, Brother Kevin, that's the class that the girls were taking. And so that's why I took art. And, uh, but I was made to paint something. But I do have some sense of a love of some type of art. But one, one, one category, one genre of art I do not really care for is religious art. I don't really care for religious art, especially religious art about that depicts Jesus Christ. 
Because <laughs> not not quite. Because why? What is, what is the typical? You know, you you paint this meek, this mild, this this passive, this amiable, mild mannered person who walks society, raising the dead. I mean, he put every funeral home in Palestine out of business. Raising the dead, healing the sick, giving, giving sight to the blind, deaf to the, those who cannot hear. He stands in that one picture, he stands in the, at the noblest doorway with the long flowing golden hair and the, and the long robe. He stands at the noblest door depicted in Revelation chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea, knocking on the door. Please let me come into your heart. I'm so thankful that I don't serve a God tonight that has to beg to come into the heart of a sinner. I'm thankful tonight that I serve a God that invades the heart of a sinner and changes the heart of that sinner. I am so thankful tonight that grace is irresistible. I'm so thankful tonight for that. Because if grace would be resistible, I would resist it. And I would still be on my way to hell and so would you. But we, but we have trouble because of all this stuff, all this artwork and these things that bombard us. I mean, I've even been in churches, and probably you have too. I mean, you've even been in churches where, where you have this, little, this picture of this mild, mannerly Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, church, when anyone stood to the face of Christ and came to try and understand who, was really, who he really was, what was their normal reaction? Fear. No one walked away from Jesus Christ saying, man, he's a nice dude. Man, I'm going to have him over for dinner. We ought, to, we ought to get together more often, Jesus. Give me, your, give me your email address. Nobody walked away from Jesus like that. I believe with all my heart, church, as I study the scripture, that there were some people on the earth that Jesus Christ absolutely traumatized. Christ's very presence was intimidating. I mean, he intimidated the lawyers in the temple at the age of 12. I mean, who is this guy? How does he know so much about our law? Well, duh, because he gave it to Moses. I mean, he intimidated those people. In Matthew chapter 7, for example, beginning in verse 28, I'll just give you a couple of, of instances of this. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having what? Authority. And not as the scribes. What was the difference between the scribes' teaching and the teachings of Christ? It's the same difference that it is today. If you go into a typical Jewish synagogue today and a man gets up and speaks, he'll, he'll say this, Rabbi so-and-so said on behalf of Rabbi so-and-so that this is the way it ought to be. But Jesus came on the scene and said, your rabbis have said this, but I say to you, this is the way that it is. Jesus came with, to the people with an undaunting authority that the people were absolutely unfamiliar with. All they were familiar with was their scribes quoting other scribes, their rabbis quoting other rabbis. They had no idea of the authority of a man that said, but I say to you, this is the commandment. And that's why it says that he taught them as one having authority, one having power. And not as the scribes. 
I mean, the authority of Jesus was apparent. And Jesus' presence aroused fear in people. For example, in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 31, the Bible says that there arose a great wind, storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he, speaking about Christ, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and send him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And what does the Bible say was their reaction? Man, thank you, Jesus. I'm glad you were here. Man, that was a close one. Man, dude, I thought we were going to die. Now, what was their reaction? Verse 41, and they feared. Well, they didn't fear the storm. The storm wasn't around anymore. Who did they fear? They feared Christ. They feared exceedingly. <laughs> Listen, in my estimation, folks, there's only one thing that's more fierce than a frightening storm outside the boat. And that is having the holiness of God inside the boat. That's much more fearful than the storm outside. Mark chapter 5, verse 17, and they began to talking about when Jesus Christ came to the coast of uh, Gadara and, got, and encountered the d- demoniac of Gadara. And remember what happened. He, he introduced himself and they said, what's your name? I'm Legion. And he says, you know, come out of him. And where did he put them? Put them into the pigs. And what happened to the pigs? They jumped off the cliff and went into the water and they drowned. And what did the people around there begin to do? I mean, that was their livelihood. And the Bible says there in Mark chapter 5, verse 17, and they began to pray him to depart out of their coast. Why? Well, people say, well, because they got mad at him because they lost all the pigs. No, if they, were, if they wanted him to leave because they got mad that they lost the pigs, he, they would have been demanding compensation. They were terrified at his presence. Get out of here. Your presence is too intimidating. You see, folks, Jesus was not this mild-mannered carpenter from Nazareth. He was omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, sovereign, providential God in flesh. That was among man who was absolutely holy. Remember later on in Mark chapter 5, the woman had the issue of blood. We don't know what that issue of blood was. It's very probable that she had a disease known as endometriosis. That's very probable what her disease was. But we just know that she had had an issue of blood and she had been to doctors for 12 years, the Bible says, and no cure. She heard that Jesus Christ was coming into town. She says, man, if I could just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And, the, and she, goes, she goes and he touches his garment. And what was Jesus' response? Who touched me? Verse 31, the disciples said to him, thou seest a multitude thronging thee. And thou sayest, who's touched me? And they, what do you mean who touched you? I mean, take your pick. I mean, take your pick. Verse 33, what does it say about the woman? Fearing and what? Trembling. The word trembling is the same word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used for the description of Sinai shaking when God gave Moses the law. She shook at the presence of Christ. She was terrified. At the presence of Christ. And listen, church, any sinner in the presence of God should be. 
In Luke chapter 5, remember the disciples went out fishing and caught nothing? Came back to the shore, whipped up on. And Jesus met them on the shore and he said, did you catch anything? No, we didn't catch anything. Well, let's go on out. Oh, come on, master, we've already gone out there. We've been out there all night. We called, come on, let's go out. And what happened? They called so much that they, they, called, that they had to call the buddies over and put some fish in their boat so they wouldn't sink. And it says there in verse 8 of Luke 5, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What, the, what was the reaction of this man of God, this fisherman called by Christ what was his reaction to the power and the presence of God in flesh? I am a sinful man. And listen, church, if you can just imagine this type of fear to God's glory veiled in flesh, can you imagine the fear that's going to be on the hearts of the unredeemed when God's glory is, un is revealed and unleashed on society? It's massive to think about. All Peter could see when he came into the presence of Jesus was his own sinfulness. When he was confronted with the power and the presence of holy God, all he saw was his sinfulness. A true, a true worshiper comes in that type of spirit, church. A true worshiper comes with that type of an attitude. A true worshiper's life is a life of contrition. A life that sees sins and confesses them continually, which is why John says, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what has happened in the church? Why do so many live with seemingly no fear of the Lord? It's because, listen, church, we have lost the fear of the Lord because we take grace for granted. Sometimes you want to, sometimes I think God is too good to us. Because we take that grace for granted. Just because when God told Adam and Eve in Genesis not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the day that you do, verse 17, you're going to die. And just because they did not die, we think God is, is slack on his word. He is slack on his holiness. Just because God showed mercy. And all throughout redemptive history, people have always disobeyed God's law and not died. David committed adultery, which according to God's law, said he should have died, but yet he did not die. Because God showed grace, God showed mercy. According to scripture, the goodness of God, according to Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, the goodness of God should provoke us to repentance. But it doesn't do that, does it? Even in the church, we take God's grace for granted because he doesn't judge us the way that he, his holiness demands for our sin. The society, why do you think Gavin Newsom has absolutely no fear of hanging those type of billboards across the country? Because of the goodness of God. It's not drawing him to repentance, it's drawing him to presume upon that grace. Our hearts, his heart, is so desperately wicked and so desperately corrupt and so desperately evil that when the mercy of God is received and the mercy of God is given, it is taken for granted. And we, think, and we take God's grace for granted so much that consequently when God does judge sin, he we say, God, you're not being fair. You're unjust. Listen, just because God showed you grace and mercy five times and judges you on the sixth time doesn't make God unjust. 
It just made him gracious the first five times. The question is, the question that we need to ask ourselves really is, why does, not, why does God not judge sinners more dramatically than he does? This question we need to ask is, why does God allow any of us to live? The question is not, why does God allow people, or why does God send people to hell? The question really is, why does God allow anyone to go to heaven? Because he is holy. For Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, the weeping prophet Jeremiah says, It is of the Lord's what? Mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Fail not. But listen to me, church, very, very intently. God's mercy is not a blessing on your sin. Just because God does not judge you immediately for the sins that we do does not mean that that's God's stamp of approval. And the real question is not why God judges, for example, Lot's wife so quickly and so harshly, but why he has not done the same to us. That's the question. And be careful. Be mindful. That while we enjoy as his people the mercies of God, that we don't neglect the truth of his holiness. We come before God as true worshipers, recognizing his holiness and being in contrition because we're truly coming to the presence of God. We need to ask God, God, I want to be in your presence because I want my heart pure before you. I don't want sin, church. I don't want sin to be in this old heart. And I know you don't either. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.